This is The Extraordinary Story, a podcast about the life of Christ. Jesus Christ, God himself, entered the confusing maze that is our world to show us who we are and to give us his cross as a ladder up and out. This is his story and ours, The Extraordinary Story. Brought to you by Ex Corde at Benedictine College in Atchison, Kansas. Written and hosted by Tom Hoops. Jesus preaches and heals and starts making a name for himself as his ministry fires up. He proclaims the kingdom, he heals, he teaches, and on the way gives us a model of what God wants and what God is all about. Next week, we'll see some trouble, but today it's all a glorious romp of awesomeness. Let me start by reading the gospel. I'll read actually from the gospel of Mark, the first chapter. I think I'll read a couple of times from the gospel of Mark, first chapter. So this is Mark 1, 21. They came to Capernaum, and on the Sabbath, Jesus entered the synagogue and taught. The people were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. In their synagogue was a man with an unclean spirit. He cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Jesus rebuked him and said, Quiet, come out of him. The unclean spirit convulsed him, and with a loud cry came out of him. All were amazed and asked one another, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. His fame spread everywhere throughout the whole region of Galilee. Well, this is from the Gospel of Mark, and it is truly awesome. Mark is truly awesome. This is apparently written, the Greek is kind of a plain-spoken, kind of unlearned Greek compared to, for instance, the Greek of St. John the Evangelist. But the structure of the whole Gospel of Mark is kind of structured like a movie. In fact, when we first started talking about this idea, we thought of just doing it on the Gospel of Mark. But you've uh, probably noticed the three-act structures in movies where Act 1, the hero wins. Act 2, the hero gets in increasing amounts of trouble. Act 3, the hero looks like he's a goner, but then a surprise twist comes and saves the day. And he wins in the end. Well, this is Act 1 where the hero just wins and wins and wins, and then comes more winning. In the Gospel of Mark, this is the mysterious man Jesus appearing, predicted by John and surprising everybody with his strange teaching and unexpected powers. In fact, we kind of have Jesus the action hero in Mark. Jesus is always on the move in the Gospel of Mark, healing and exercising demons. So Mark is the shortest gospel. It's only 16 chapters, but he says immediately 40 times in those 16 chapters. Mark's is really a gospel of action rather than words. In the Gospel of John, you'll hear Jesus talking a lot about who he is and what it means to be who he is. But as Brant Petrie likes to point out, Mark is very concerned and just as concerned as John at looking at Jesus's divinity, but he does it through actions, not through words. So you see him doing things that only God can do, even though he doesn't say that he's God with the same kind of clarity that he does in the Gospel of John. Also, like a movie, Mark gives us these not just great actions, but great reactions. So, you know, you hear the onlookers say, what is this, a new teaching with authority? 
it's kind of a movie trick to kind of draw the audience's attention to what just happened and its import. Jesus will later forgive a paralytic and the scribes say, how can this man speak thus? And he calms the storm and the apostles say, who is this that even the wind and sea obey him? So it's like a spotlight on the moment to tell you, hey, that was important. Mark also shows a lot more emotion than some of the other gospels. Uh, Jesus reacts to events with very human emotions. He gets angry. He gets disappointed. He shows pity. He shows surprise. He sighs deeply and he gets hungry. He's very admiring of people at one point. He's kind of overwhelmed by things at another point. Mark in the New Testament is mentioned a couple of times as being with Peter. So the person who wrote this was kind of Peter's secretary. So it's often thought that this is Peter's gospel. This is the story as Mark would have heard it from Peter. But the very first words of the gospel are important. I didn't read them in what I read today, but the very first words of the gospel are the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Well, Bishop Barron likes to make the point about how when Caesar would win over a new territory, he would send out evangelists sharing the good news that he has a new territory. So they'd go through saying, the good news of Caesar, we have taken over. Well, here's Mark, the secretary of Peter, telling people the good news that Jesus Christ has won new territory. So there's a new king in town. His name is Jesus. And here's what he's all about, says Mark. And what is he all about? Well, Peter later is quoted in the book of the Acts of the Apostles saying, God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power. He went about doing good and healing all those oppressed by the devil, and God was with him, end quote. So that's essentially Peter giving the message that we just heard Mark give. Last week, I described how a number of philosophical moves from Descartes through the Enlightenment to modern times to Nietzsche left people confused and unable to hear God's word. Uh, it can make you feel kind of helpless as the world seems to have this unassailable wall of misunderstanding that renders the voice of God unintelligible. But this gospel is a great antidote to that. It shows how we can get around people's defenses. Because the way this gospel describes the crowd reacting to Jesus is remarkable. The people were astonished by his teaching, it says. All were amazed and asked one another, what is this, a new teaching with authority? Why were they astonished? Because here was a man whose words matched his actions. It's like Mother Teresa explaining to you that you should be charitable to people versus Tom Hoops explaining to you that you should be charitable to people. The here is a person who actually does what she says. Or St. John Paul II talking about human freedom after emerging from a lifelong struggle with Nazism and communism. When words are accompanied with love and authenticity, the voice of God pierces our defenses and takes us by surprise. The first problem we face, the first problem Jesus faced, is trying to convince people that they need a savior. Well, Jesus not only accompanies his words with love and authenticity, he accompanies them with authority. Confronted with demonic possession, Jesus doesn't have to do the arduous and extensive exorcism procedures that people in his day used to do when confronted with somebody with demonic possession. Instead, he simply says, quiet, come out of him, and the demons obey. This is clearly a new thing on earth, a holy man greater than the prophets, master of the supernatural,
coming to save us. Now, our time is no less demon-vexed as Jesus' time, but our problem is that rationalism has left us blind to the presence of the supernatural. So if we understand how often the powers of hell seep into the world, we might appreciate the Savior more too. But too often we suffer from the same demons of addiction that the people we want to reach suffer from, and that makes us unable to convince them and it saps us of authority. We'll talk a lot more about demons in the future. It's a little bit of an unsettling concept, but it's a real thing. We'll talk about it later. Right now, I want to read more of Mark's first chapter to give you a sense of this immediacy that Mark gets across with Jesus's mission early on. This is Mark 1, 29. On leaving the synagogue, Jesus entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Simon's mother-in-law lay sick with a fever. They immediately told him about her. He approached, grasped her hand, and helped her up. Then the fever left her, and she waited on them. When it was evening after sunset, they brought to him all who were ill or possessed by demons. The whole town was gathered at the door. He cured many who were sick with various diseases and drove out many demons, not permitting them to speak because they knew him. Rising very early before dawn, he left and went off to a deserted place where he prayed. Simon and those who were with him pursued him, and on finding him said, Everyone is looking for you. He told them, Let us go to the nearby villages that I may preach there also. For this purpose have I come. So this comes right after our previous gospel, literally the next verse. So Jesus has just astonished the crowd with his authority and personal witness. Like so many people today, with COVID-19, Peter's mother-in-law was not there while the crowd was being astonished. She was at home, sick with a fever. As soon as people bring her predicament to Jesus, he approaches, grasps her hand, and helps her up, and the fever leaves her right away. Jesus very much wants to heal people, and his reputation for doing so becomes so well known that after sunset they brought to him all who were ill and possessed, and the whole town was gathered at his door. But his true priority lies elsewhere. The healing is important, but there's one thing more important. First, the gospel tells us, rising very early at dawn, he left and went to a deserted place where he prayed. He rises early not to heal, but to pray. Then, Simon and those who were with him pursued him, and on finding him said, everyone is looking for you. He continues not by visiting sick beds, but by visiting synagogues, not driving out fevers, but driving out demons and preaching. Jesus wants to heal bodies, absolutely, but when he has to choose here between healing bodies and healing souls, there's no contest in his mind. He picks souls. So this gospel gives us a little lesson in how to be heard in our difficult environment. First, he reaches out and approaches Peter's mother and grasps her by the hand. So someone is sick, they tell Jesus, Jesus immediately reaches out and touches the person. He wants us to have that kind of immediacy, that kind of real one-on-one contact. And he also wants us to direct people to Jesus so that Jesus can himself reach out and touch those people. Next, he heals our minds. The Gospels make very clear that the people who are writing them understand the difference between diseases and demons. They even, there's part in the gospel where the difference between epilepsy and demonic possession is clear. We've seen both of these things in our own time, and it's clear that these are two different things. But 
in monastic literature, demons are often depicted as this sort of dark figure in your life who's pulling you away from what you need to do and pulling you away from God's will. Well, that's the same thing that's true today. And Jesus wants to heal that kind of psychological issue, that kind of thing which is drawing you away from God as much as he wants to heal your body. He heals the brokenhearted. He is anxious, it seems, to stop healing in one place or to finish up healing in one place because he wants to go to nearby villages and preach there also. He's always on the move looking for people who are brokenhearted, as the psalm says, to try to heal them. Last, God wants to heal people through us, through his apostles, through his disciples, who are, after all, the ones who help people line up and get in line to be able to be touched by Jesus Christ. And that's all true today. It's true today that we need to continue Jesus's healing ministry through our own sacrifice, our own time, our own reaching out to people in need. There's a story told about a reporter who was following Mother Teresa around as she went through this exhausting you know, schedule of serving people and serving her sisters. And he saw Mother Teresa doing a particularly loathsome task. She was pulling maggots out of the flesh of a dying man. And he said, oh my gosh, I wouldn't do that for a million dollars. And she smiled and looked at at him and said, neither would I. (laughs) She doesn't do it for a million dollars. She does it for Jesus Christ. And this is really the story of the church. So today, the story of the church is often misunderstood as the sex abuse scandal, as uh, a church that wants to throw its weight around, as a church of know-it-alls, as a church of people who are judgmental. But that's only because of the circumstances of the 21st century and the circumstances probably of the abuse scandal, which we're going to actually talk a lot about next time. Apart from that, Catholics were pioneers in service to the poor. So the church's teaching against slavery goes back to St. Paul, if you look at it one way, but certainly back to St. John Chrysostom, who is very dead set against slavery. Also St. Thomas Aquinas, who wrote against slavery also decrees in the 1400s all the way to the 1800s forbidding the slave trade. The practice was not always there, but the teaching was certainly always there. And in the United States, you have the church teaching leading the way to make for pioneers against racial slavery. Again, these are often at odds with practice. Pius IX had to place one American bishop's pastoral letter on slavery on the forbidden books list because he thought that it was racist in 1864. But apart from cases like that, you had real inroads to racial equality made by the Catholic Church. The Knights of Columbus admitted its first African-American member in 1890s when the organization was still relatively new. Catholic leaders marched hand-in-hand with Martin Luther King Jr., demanding equal treatment, led the way for blacks to be part of the mainstream of society. You have New Orleans Archbishop Joseph Rummel, who desegregated Catholic schools and excommunicated three public officials who opposed the church's teaching on racial equality. For decades in the recent past, the oldest black leaders in the political world if you look back at their biographies, we're all educated in Catholic schools because, as it turns out, when they were younger, the only places that were educating young blacks in elementary school were Catholic schools. 
So Catholic schools were right there in the center of the fight for civil rights. Well, Catholics were at the center for many fights for respect for human dignity. Pope Leo XIII's 1891 encyclical Ram Navarum launched a worldwide movement that sought for fair treatment for workers, not in socialism or in unbridled capitalism, but in a middle way that stressed the role of churches. Pope Leo said, To defraud anyone of wages that are his due is a great crime which cries to the avenging anger of heaven. End quote. Later, 1948's Universal Declaration of Human Rights was a boon to Christian activists worldwide and a bane to atheistic dictators. Baylor University's Paul Marshall traces its development back to the Catholic Church. The French Catholic philosopher Jacques Maritain had an enormous influence on the document, he said. He presided over the earliest UN meetings on human rights and served as a godfather of a process that produced the declaration. Catholics invented the rules about how others should be treated during war. Ever since St. Augustine formulated the principles of just war, the Church has developed the principles of just in bellum, which is just war, and just in bello, behavior and conduct during war, that are used in international law to this day. In the 20th century, they helped shape the Geneva Conventions and the Nuremberg Standards and are summed up best in the Catechism of the Catholic Church, which says, Non-combatants, wounded soldiers, and prisoners must be respected and treated humanely. It even says blind obedience does not suffice to excuse those who carry out heinous actions during war. Centuries from now, the church will also be remembered as a great defender of unborn life in our own time. As state legislatures embrace the unthinkable, killing babies at every stage of pregnancy up to and including birth, the Catholic Church has often been the most powerful voice demanding that the barbarism stop. And the Church hasn't just moralized about abortion. Catholics led the way by helping mothers in difficult situations and helping babies after they're born. The Church's service to the poor is a hallmark from the dawn of Christianity till today. Bishop Barron, once again, says that the best way to convert somebody were, if it were possible, take him to Calcutta and show him how Mother Teresa's sisters, the missionaries of charity, act toward the poor. He said, I'd just bring them there and say, look, I'm not going to tell you what to think or how to behave. Just look at them. Just watch them for a while. In itself, that would probably be enough, he said. But you can go to many places besides Calcutta to see this. Nikki Haley, who's the Methodist former UN ambassador to the United Nations said, I've been to some truly dark places where the suffering would be hard for most Americans to imagine. I've been to the border between Colombia and Venezuela where people walk three hours each day in the blazing sun to get only one meal that they will have that day. Who's giving them that meal? The Catholic Church, she said. I've been to refugee camps in Central Africa where young boys are kidnapped and forced to become child soldiers and young girls are raped as a matter of routine. Who is in the forefront of changing the culture of corruption and violence? The Catholic Church. The Church does everyday miracles, she said, helping millions of desperate people. In fact, it's just a measure of how horrific the sex abuse scandals truly are that we don't think of the Catholic Church only as this amazing service organization which has done so many revolutionary things. Pope Francis recently said, as both John Paul II and Benedict XVI have said, today's world stands in great need of witnesses. 
not so much of teachers, but rather of witnesses. It's not so much about speaking, but rather about speaking with our whole lives, living consistently, the very consistency of our lives. This consistency means living Christianity as an encounter with Jesus that brings me to others, not just as a social label. Witness is what counts. How can we become witnesses that our society needs? I've recently been talking in my class a lot about uh, Stephen Covey's Circle of Concern versus Circles of Influence. This is from the bestseller at the end of the 20th century, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. The concept of circles of concern and circles of influence is a great answer to the anxiety many of us feel about the world right now. Think of two concentric circles. The circle of concern is the tire. The circle of influence is the hubcap. Your circle of concern includes all those things that you worry about, everything from estranged family members, office drama, politics, the future of the church, whatever you saw in the news. Your circle of influence is much smaller. These are the things you can actually change, your own home, your own behavior at work, your own personal prayer life, for instance. What you find is the more time and energy you spend focused on things that you can't change, in your circle of concern, the smaller your circle of influence gets. People start to see you as obsessed by politics or fixated by rage or hypocritical, and they start to avoid you and take everything you say with a grain of salt. Conversely, if you focus on your circle of influence, it slowly grows while your circle of concern shrinks. So to be concrete, posting Your anger on social media will make your anger grow while writing a letter to your representative and then moving on helps your anger subside. While rehearsing the hurts you have with the difficult people in your life turns you even more against them. If instead you do what you can do to love them, even if it's only prayer and sacrifice, your stress level will drop. That's why this first chapter of Mark is so key. After its grandiose beginning about a new king in town, it progresses with Jesus serving local people. His circle of concern is the whole world. His circle of influence in that first chapter are the people of Galilee. Fulton Sheen said accepting the cross of service thwarts the one thing that makes you most unhappy, which is your excessive self-love. Quote, you will never be happy if your happiness depends on getting solely what you want, he said. Change the focus, get a new center, will what God wants, and your joy will come, a joy no man will take from you. What should that new center be? St. John Paul II tells us, what really matters in life is that we are loved by Christ and that we love in return. St. Therese of Lisieux translates this into very simple actions. Miss no single opportunity of making some small sacrifice, here by a smiling look, there by a kindly word, always doing the smallest right and doing it all for love, she wrote. If enough of us do that, the troubles in the world that worry us will greatly decrease and our own influence will grow because Christ's will. The example we see in the Gospel of Jesus starting so locally with so many small acts of kindness, caring, teaching, is critical for our time in particular. Many of us love God a lot. We love the Catholic faith a lot. 
and we don't understand why more people don't. I think it's precisely because we love God, but we don't really love other people all that much. And don't get me wrong, it's awesome that we love God. We love him against great odds. We've remained faithful to God when it wasn't easy at all to remain faithful to God. We stuck with God and his church after Vatican II and all the strange expressions of the faith and the grand exodus from the faith that came after Vatican II. We love him despite the abandonment of catechesis by many in our childhood, such that many of us, me included, were never ever really taught about God. We love God and his church despite the fact that the sacrament of confession was dropped for many years in what St. John Paul II called a crisis in the sacrament. We love God despite the betrayal of the sex abuse crisis. We love him and his church despite the capitulation of many Catholics to the church's most bloodthirsty enemy in history, the abortion industry. We love God and his church despite the signs that many of us have seen that the church doesn't necessarily love us back, that our faith makes many in the church a little uncomfortable. So what we've done is no small thing, and the situation has given many Catholics today kind of a post-traumatic stress disorder, where we they feel like they've given so much and feel so betrayed that they can't give any more and they can't face another betrayal. But don't forget that every age has had to love God in his church exactly that way. Jesus was himself the victim of religious leaders. He was sold out, denied, and abandoned by the apostles, all except for John. Paul had to chastise the Christian leaders, the bishops of his day, for all sorts of terrible things. And on it continued from the Christological heresies, to the Great Schism, to the Reformation, to our own fractured times. In fact, every saint is a saint despite disappointment with or rejection by church leaders to a greater or lesser degree. Saints have been enslaved by other Christians, locked up by their own religious orders, rejected by their flocks for the color of their skin, killed by firing squads and gas chambers in predominantly Christian nations. So what we U.S. Catholics have done is good, but it's not unique. Loving a disappointing church is the vocation of every Catholic. It always has been, and so it will always be until the trumpet sounds and the dead arise. Now we have to do the other thing generations of Catholics have done. Alongside the bitter disappointment in the church's history is a story of Christians who refused to be bitter. They overcame their bitterness by focusing on what matters most, loving God, and also loving one's neighbor. Why must we love our neighbor? Because we will be judged solely on whether or not we loved God and neighbor. Uh, the gospel I read is Jesus showing us dramatically where what he's going to tell us explicitly later on, which is that we are judged by how we treat our neighbor. Second, it's also a model of what we have to say to our neighbors. At the end of his life, Jesus will ascend into heaven after telling us to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them and teaching them to observe all I commanded you. Third, we must love our neighbor because lack of love is literally killing them. 
An epidemic of loneliness is fueling depression and anxiety. An epidemic of hopelessness has pushed suicide and deaths of despair to record levels. A refusal to embrace the truth is causing people to make irrevocably self-destructive choices. You know all of that, and so do I, but I have a really hard time loving my neighbor all the same, and you might also. See if the problems that I face sound familiar at all to you. First, I find myself feeling mostly rage and contempt for people who work against some of the important things in politics that I've noticed, particularly the right to life, maybe the sanctity of marriage, other things. Second, the abject hypocrisy of the dominant players in news and social media makes me so mad I end up sounding like a raving lunatic to my family. Third, I've squirreled myself away into an increasingly well-fortified bubble of people who share my worldview in order to keep my sanity, only to find that it has made it harder than ever for me to face anybody who lives outside that bubble. So what's my way out of this hole? Well, love and love alone is the way out. We have to build community in the post-pandemic world. Already before the pandemic, wise prognosticators were arguing that meeting people on screens culture had reached an absurd point and that backlash would soon begin. After the years of Zoom, this is even more the case, and Christians have to be ready to step into the void and meet people face to face. Our neighbors are dying from lack of love. Aaron Cardi, who's a psychiatrist, tells a story about how one man who jumped off of a bridge left a note behind saying, if anyone smiles at me on the way to the bridge, I won't jump. Clearly nobody did. Who on our own street is thinking that way? We have to love our politically opposite family members. We all need to relearn what to do with competing truth claims and how to win over those who seem utterly opposed to us. We have to relearn what it means to love people, not because of what they believe, but because of who they are. We need to learn how to talk to people of a new generation. New books in neuroscience and philosophical history talk about the rise of the modern self. Who are these people and how do you have conversations with them and how do you understand where they're coming from? We have to celebrate our neighbors. We're used to thinking of everything that our opponents get wrong, but we should probably stop and notice a lot of things that they get right, things that Catholics can actually learn from, like concern for the marginalized, concern for the environment, concern for authenticity and transparency, and the refusal to accept easy answers. And we have to remember above all that we're about to win Stop being embarrassed about the church. Stop thinking of your neighbors as bad guys that you need to hide from, defeat, or ignore. Not only does the church still have the truth, but the world has gotten it so disastrously wrong that, just like you, your neighbor can't help but notice. And just in time, from Ascension to Word on Fire, from EWTN to Formed to Ex Corde, we live in a time and place that has better, more professional, more comprehensive, more accessible Catholic content than anywhere else in the history of the world. It's like we have a dozen Fulton Sheens, each of them suited to our particular tastes, who are ready to reach out to us in our inbox every morning. The good news 
Today is the same as the good news that begins the Gospel of Mark. Jesus Christ is the new king in town. He's taking over. He's won the victory already. The only thing preventing that victory from taking root in our neighborhoods is us. He sent a advanced team ahead of him to tell people about Jesus Christ. That's you and me and others who believe. If we don't do it, people won't find out. That's the way Jesus set it up. So the good news is Christ is King and all we have to do is tell people about his continuing extraordinary story. The Extraordinary Story is written by Tom Hoops and produced by Ex Corde at Benedictine College in Atchison, Kansas. Our mission is to produce media that will transform culture in America through Benedictine's mission of community, faith, and scholarship. If you enjoy this podcast, please follow us on Spotify and Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Leave a review and share with a friend. Help us tell others about the extraordinary story. Visit us at excorde.org.